Welcome to a special series on the Bohemian podcast called The Great War, The Czech Experience. Here are your hosts. Good evening and welcome to a special edition of the Bohemian podcast called The Great War, The Czech Experience. I'm your host, Pete Coleman. And I'm Travis Dow from the History of Alchemy podcast. This evening's third installment of The Great War, The Czech Experience is called Death from Above. We will examine the lives of several wartime aces with their Czech roots fighting for the Austrian-Hungarian Empire. Now, there are several reasons why many Czechs do not know of their exploits or claim them as national heroes, the reasons we will examine later in the show tonight. Travis, who is our first and foremost ace figure that we're going to look at this evening? Well, the one with the most kills, let's say, is Julius Arigi, and he was born in 1895 and lived all the way until 1981, and he was a flying ace of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And he had a total of 32 credited victories. In all of Austria-Hungary, he's second, I think. The, the highest was like 35, so he's, he's right up there. Um, he's also the most highly decorated ace, considered a superb pilot. He was also kind of a technical innovator, so he actually would give the manufacturers feedback on like technical improvements to, you know, how to, how to make the, the aircraft fly better. And he was born in Dietchen, which is in modern-day Czech Republic, to a Sudeten German family. So again, born in Czech Republic, but kind of, you know, German ancestry roots. Lived along the borders, basically. Yeah, and, and Sudetenland is right. yeah right on the border. Before he joined the military, he was a waiter and an electrician. He, vol- he volunteered in, in October of 1913 for the Fortress Artillery Regiment Number no. 1, which is a part of the Austro-Hungarian Army. And, 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 and Travis, you, you also noticed that m- many of these guys, there wasn't really an aviation group right off the onset of World War I for most of these folks. So most of these guys were uh, foot soldiers or in the infantry before they were uh, jumped on in. Yeah, in fact, it, it, you know, aircraft in general was at that point a really new invention, right? Yeah, it was. Uh, we're talking only less than a decade uh, you know, between uh, sustained flights and, and being able to use this for anything beyond crop dusting and maybe uh, delivery of mail from, from certain distances away, that people were actually thinking about this as a war machine. Now, as World War I was approaching, these aircraft were r- very much rudimentary. Many of the problems that were foundational issues with this aircraft would being able to use uh, weapons on the aircraft without shooting pr- their propellers off. You know, there was a timing mechanism at this point that they were trying to work out. So uh, if you had housed a machine gun on the front uh, of your aircraft, there wasn't a timing issue to shoot through your propellers. So you'd shoot them right off. And of course, crash. Yeah. So, I mean, those things were trying, they were trying to work on that. They were trying to work on maneuverability with the elevators. And I believe, as you touched upon this, Travis, that, uh, that Julius uh, Origi was uh, just known to be able to take back his experiences as a pilot and talk to the manufacturers about the, ele- the correct elevators and, and usage of rudders on the airplane to get more maneuverability. So this was, these, these, ships, these airships were a work in progress, and um, we look at them now as pretty much glorified kites with propellers and engines. Uh, very dangerous division within the, ar- within the armed services. Yeah, but, but for the aircraft aficionados out there, like if, if you want to look some of these up, you can look up the Hansa Brandenburg. That's one of the earlier ones. And then go look up something like the Albatross D3 or the Avatic D1. It's, there's already a huge shift from, from one to the next. So the, the first one's kind of like this really boxy canvas uh, contraption where the machine gun is pointing backwards because it doesn't want to shoot into the propeller. 
um, things like that. It was that. a two-seater for one, so, so so you would have one that would just focus as a pilot, the other as as the maybe the navigator slash uh, um, wep weapon specialist on the on the on the aircraft itself, like so, Indiana Jones. Like just yeah, have you seen the you seen the on Indiana Jones? Shoots off the tail. Ex and, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, you know these these aircraft were put together by uh, uh, you know looking at the, the German side of things, and you can see the progression as they were getting better from the Hansa uh, Brandenburg version to the Albatross, and maybe later into the to the, to the Fokker. You'll see that the airplanes were getting better and better, and the German slash Austrian-Hungarian Empire were no slouches with this innovation. Uh, as a matter of fact, the Triple Entente, you're talking about you know, the French, the English, later on the Americans with their Sopwith camels and their, and their jennies, and you know they had a lot of problems that weren't addressed uh, until later in the war. The Germans seemed to be right, right on top of that, and I think the Austrian-Hungarian Empire uh, and their Air Corps were uh, taking advantage of some of that knowledge set that the Germans had. So, Travis, going back to Julius Origi, uh, he really was uh, an amazing ace, and he kept getting better and better. As we look in the beginning of World War I, Origi was assigned to, was assigned to the Flieger Company uh, 6, based in South uh, Dalmatia, flying the Lloyd-type LS-2 and the Leuner biplane aircraft in operations against Serbia and, and Montenegrin forces. On the 20th of December 1914, Origi and, and his observer, Lieutenant Levek, uh, crash-landed a loner 140 in the Adriatic Sea. Fortunately for both of them, this was in shallow water. However, this would not be the last harrowing escape from death that he would experience, Travis. In fact, in October 1915, so not even a year later, Origi became a prisoner of war when he was forced down due to engine failure in a reconnaissance flight when he was in Montenegro, so behind enemy lines, really. And he escaped captivity on his sixth try, so, you know, kind of a <laughs> strong-headed... Did, did not want to be ca uh, captured. Yeah. <laughs> About uh, three, four months later, yeah, so in January 16, 1916, however, by stealing an en enemy staff car belonging to Prince Nicholas of Mon Montenegro, and then he was able to rejoin his... Um, unit later in Albania. Sounds like a great so, movie line, doesn't it? I mean, he just he's he's captured. He's able attempts, to six yeah. attempts from like the Great Escape. You'd think they would kind of <laughs> lock him down after the third one, you know, <laughs> let's right. say. But uh, towards the end of 1916, he was transferred to the Isonzo Front in Italy, and there he mostly flew escort missions in this Honden Brandenburg that we mentioned, which is a, a single seat fighter. And by May 1917, his victory total was up to 12. That escalated to his final mark of 32, which we mentioned earlier, when he cooperated with two other Austro-Hungarian aces. One was Captain Josef von Maia and Lieutenant, or Second Lieutenant, Josef Kiss. And while flying on the Albanian front, Arigi sank an Italian steamboat in the port of Valona, which is now the city of Flore. And, and, so, and as you can see right now, we're not just talking about dogfights. Uh, and we're also talking about uh, other uh, strategic targets. Uh, and at uh, this time in the Albanian front, uh, he was uh, pretty good at being able to, to attack uh, flotillas or, or, or float, floating targets, uh, in this case a steamboat. So after the war, uh, he, he co-founded Icarus, one of uh, Czechoslovakia's premier civil aviation companies. And we talked about that knowledge set that he had during the war that kind of really helped him out quite a bit. Also, while in Czechoslovakia, he helped uh, select new airfields and kind of bring the Czechoslovak air group in, into, uh, into fruition. By the way, they were huge. Still to this day, they feed off of that. We talked about this before. They were the industrial base of Austria-Hungary. 
Well, they inherited all these little tiny uh, aircraft companies after the war, and they bloomed and blossomed. And and to this day, um, they ha they're, they these companies are still around. Like a lot of these um, smaller kind of um, civil aviation, like one seaters, two seater, like you know now they're called like ultralight or or light aircraft, and things like in the class of crop dusters and that sort of or just kind of hobby airplanes. Um, and there's still a bunch of airfields around Prague, and they take their air shows seriously. And like I used to sell airplane parts, and and I was really impressed with for how small the company, uh, how small the country is, how many aircraft manufacturers there are. It's like per capita, it's it's you know one of the highest in the world. It's pretty impressive. So this started then, and you know he's one of the guys that helped one of these companies start up. Well, this uh, Richie sounds like an amazing man, and one of the things that in our research yeah, that just kind of amazed me is that you know there's a reason why he's not a national hero, yeah, though, right? And, and this is and this is the point. I mean, he also d in, indulged in espionage besides the civil a aviation company uh, excursions that he had. Uh, but his claim to fame was 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 imparting his knowledge to the next war effort in World War II because he was an ardent Nazi. There's the rub. Yeah, yeah. In the 1930s, uh, aviation took a huge leap forward. I mean, almost just almost as great of a leap forward as any technology ever took. It was just insane the innovation and the the developments in in technology and kind of aerospace in general. So Arigi became a Luftwaffe fighter instructor beginning in 1938, and two of his students became some of the most successful aces in World War II. One of them was Walter Novotny, who had 258 victories. That's amazing. Yeah. And Hans Joachim Marseille, who had 158 victories. And so their ability to repeatedly shoot down multiple enemies on the same sortie can be traced to Arigi's teaching them to... Um, he had this kind of strategy where he would fly in really close, as close as possible before firing. And Arigi later noted that while both students were quietly eager, Novotny was naturally talented, but Marseille had to kind of, you know, work at it to, to, to be as good as he was. And, and that says something. You're taking something, World War One strategy and, and air combat knowledge set, and putting it into much more advanced fighters in World War II. Well, you, you want to know an interesting story? In, in Russia... Um, they had slightly outdated aircraft, including some from World War One, and they were slower. They were much but, slower. But the thing was, is that they were shot down mercilessly. They were absolutely no match for you know the top of the line um, German fighters, except for one group. There was a group of women pilots that they got the worst airplanes, which actually were these biplanes from World War One, and out of all the the survival rate was actually the highest with them because these airplanes were so slow but you know my biplanes like you still see them today in air shows because yeah. they do all these loops and, and barrel rolls and whatever and they're just really really maneuverable and from a fast flying you know even early jets from these fast flying aircraft they look like they're standing still probably hard to focus and, and, and yeah, yeah it was actually a tag on them right so so these women can kind of sit you know practically standing still, I mean, you know, relatively speaking, and kind of sit and take aim and shoot these German fighters, and the German fighters were just zipping past them. And, you know, so it wasn't a dogfight in the traditional World War II sense. So actually, some of these World War I airplanes um, kind of had an, a weird advantage 
on the Russian front in World War II. So that's you know, you know, kind one of a fun of, story. You know, one of the things that, that really kind of intrigues me, and I, I saw this in Washington, D.C. at the Smithsonian uh, Air and Space Museum, and there's one picture in the World War I division um, where, and it was, it's a very simplistic picture, and it wasn't staged, but you saw the silhouettes of about five or six French, and I assume French from the, from the helmets, tr French infantrymen in the trenches, all looking up as they're walking and seeing the biplane go over their head. Mm -hmm. And it must have been just one of those moments of saying, whoa, look at that. That's still actually something you haven't seen down on the farm, right? I mean, this is something, a brand oh, yeah. new sort of uh, idea yeah. of, of military air, um, weaponry that's flying. So uh, this is a, a, a new weapon, and uh, Origi was one of those to take, take to it. You're talking 32 kills. An amazing pilot, but why we don't really put him on a pedestal here in, in Czech Republic is because of his Nazi ties and later on in the war. Now, there was another pilot that really stu stood up that would be very close with 31 victories, and that was Paul Billick, uh, who was born uh, in March of 1891 and died in 1926. Uh, he's from Silesia, which is you know now part of the Czech Republic. And so he was born. He was from Hotch in Silesia, uh, in Germany originally, which is now part of the Czech Republic, and was a World One fighter ace that we mentioned that killed uh, thirty had thirty one uh, victories. Paul started out on the ground uh, as as Origi did as an infantryman and took to his training quite well. In November of nineteen fifteen, he received a, co a commission, apparently on the battlefield, for which suggests uncommon courage and the ability of uh, facing your enemy under fire. In May of nineteen sixteen, however, he transferred to the Fliegertruppe for aviation training. His first plane was the Schuster 4. Now, Schuster 4 is a biplane, again with a back-mounted machine gun, and uh, it was a little more boxy, as as as, uh, as Travis was talking about the earlier designs in the war, before he was able to kind of advance uh, further into better aircraft during, during his duration. On April 30th of 1917, he downed a sop with pup for his first victory. His victim was Royal Navy Air Service ace Flight Sub-Lieutenant John Joseph Joseph Malone. Billick downed three more opposing fighters before being transferred, with the number four being on July 3rd, 1917. Billick was awarded with his Iron Cross first class. Yeah, so then he was reassigned the following day, and his new unit was the Prussian Yasta 7, commanded by Josef Jakobs. He flew a Fokker DR-1 and scored one, one hit in August and, and another two in September. He was wounded on the 7th of October and claimed victory number eight on the 12th of December. Now, this Fokker is actually a triplane. This is what, what many people would look at uh, when you... I have a model of that. Yeah, when you think of the Red Baron. Yep. Baron von Richthofen He's flew his Baron. Fokker as well. He's the Red Baron. So Snoopy's nemesis. So, yeah, with the sop with camel. Yeah. <laughs> so, Billick, his claim to fame was that he was able to focus in on, on aircraft and be able to, to fly with uh, support as well. And he was more of the not of the, the lone wolf type of guy, but worked with his team quite well into zeroing in on his enemy. Unfortunately, he was killed in a flying accident while uh, pioneering some civil aviation yeah, after like, the war. Like a test flight. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So, you know, th those, are, those are the two top pilots, the top aces with Czech roots uh, in World War One, And we, we'd be remiss if we didn't mention some of these other great Czech pilots of note during the Great War. And the first one would be Captain Otto Yendra. Yeah, he, so he lived from 1896 until 1932, another Austro-Hungarian flying ace. And he was a, name, a native of Chlumetz, which is in Bohemia, so Czech Republic, or today's Czech Republic. And he was credited with nine aerial victories, 
while flying as an aerial observer. He also excelled as a leader and administrator. Now, after the war, he became a, a major mover in founding the Czechoslovakian air arm, which he eventually rose to command. So he, he kind of, he, you know, like we said, a good, good administrator and leader. The, his ace high point occurred on the 9th of April, 1916. Three days later, he would participate in an air raid that would rattle the Russians. So Yindra took Godwin Bromovsky as his gunner, as his gunner, and they attacked a military parade being reviewed by Tsar Nicholas II. Can you imagine that? I mean, so he's strafing Tsar Nicholas II with yeah. his plane. Um, and, uh, of course, that didn't, didn't work out. But uh, I'm sure sent, sent a lot of these guys scattering for cover as, the, uh, as several small bombs uh, landed and shot down two other four intercepting Russian planes. Yeah. You know, i got to mention something about the bombs in these... Uh, things because these are basically like a little bit bigger than a grenade, yeah. And they're just laying on the floor there, and you pick one up and you drop it out of the plane, like you just kind of because you know you. I mean, you, you know what these biplanes look like. It's basically like driving con a convertible. You don't have anything. You you're can't not see anything. In. And, and so, in yeah. order to actually look down, what you had to do was take your yoke, and then you had to move the rudder a little bit, so you almost kind of tip over to the yeah, side, and then you kind of and then you drop it. You just like an oversized grenade, just drop it off the side. Right. So it's not like you know, not like even World War Two, where they had kind of bomb bay doors, and you know, no, nothing like no, that. There was, there was just, no Norton bomb site at uh, early computer like the, we would have, and the, uh, the Americans would have on the B-17s at the end of World War Two. This, this was really fly by the seat of your pants. And here's the other thing with these things: you had to have a great deal of courage when you flew a biplane on either side, yeah. uh, whatever side you were you were you were flying in, mainly because you had no parachutes at the time. And so mm -hmm. if your engine caught on fire, you didn't want to burn alive, you had two options. You can either try to ride it all the way down and somehow jump and hope that you were going to, you know, jump away with your life uh, or actually take a gun and, and, and commit suicide because you didn't want to burn alive. Yeah. So those are your two options. So when you talk about the great courage, you also had the camaraderie within your own group and you had the fraternity even among your enemies. Some say this was the last bit of night warfare because you had a, a code that you, that you followed. Um, some some uh, airmen did not actually shoot on uh, others that were, were uh, their, their, their aircraft was crippled or, and they knew that there would be an easy kill. They let them go so they would fight um, another day. Yeah. You know, so it was that gentleman's agreement that you had across these lines, things that actually did not survive uh, in the next generation of World War II for sure. Um, well, Yinder ended up getting nine victories, and um, he also won several several medals and and uh, including the order of the iron crown military merit cross twice silver awards of military Mer merit medal twice the iron cross second class and that brings us to another ace which is he heinrich yindrich kosterba he was born in 1883 and died in 1926 he was also an austrian hungarian aviator he hailed from prague uh, which was he was the first to score three victories in a single day talk about a good day for him yeah um on the 18th of february 1916 and three more on the 29th of june 1916. he went on to amass eight aerial victories and become a squadron leader and a flying ace the first commanding officer of the Czechoslovakian Flying Corps later later after the war. Mm -hmm. As World War I ended, Kostroba helped with the Czech independence movement, overthrowing the Austrian-Hungarian government. So if you had to find a poster boy of all these guys that we're talking about, these aces, this probably would be the guy that maybe as a Czech, Czech person you might want to hang your hat with him because he helped kind of get independence away from Austrian-Hungarian yeah, Empire. Yeah, and then... After the independence, he became the first commanding officer of the Czechoslovak Air Force. 
And on the 24th of September in 1926, he was killed in a mid-air collision. Um, he also got a, a few merits. One was the Military Merit Cross Third Class, the German Iron Cross, and he's credited with eight victories. So, so basically right behind Otto Yindra, right? You know, so, you know, Travis, as we wrap up the, the program today with Death from Above, uh, the Czech experience in the Great War, there are several things we can, we can kind of grasp with this. One is that the Czechs, again, did not have their own identity, their own real forces when it came to air power. They had to jump in from, uh, from the trenches into the in a pilot seat through the Austro-Hungarian ranks. And once that was, was accomplished, they were, they were uh, absorbed into the, the fighting force uh, for the Austro-Hungarian Empire to, to fight against the Triple Entente. None of them really kind of gave up that flying, that flying spirit. Some of them went on to uh, try to take their, their talents into training the Luftwaffe later in, in mm -hmm. World War II, and some actually went into business uh, or to, to create something new for the Czechoslovakian Air, Air, Air Patrol. So they, a lot of these guys had flying in their blood. They didn't want to give it up. Travis, if you had to kind of encapsulate what the air war meant to World War One, what would that be? Well, it was it was a new kind of warfare. So this was something. And the interesting thing is that it became sophisticated to a degree and like out of nothing. So in in, in any war, especially up to that up to that time, it was saying, okay, so you know you're gonna try to surprise your generals by outmarching them. Well, this just put that, I mean, this just made that whole strategy obsolete overnight. So they could just pop up anywhere they wanted, you know, miles and miles away where they expected. Um, they could suddenly do do reconnaissance. Um, See troop movements. Yeah, be better get, than yeah. any ever before. So it's just a complete game changer. And I, I think just that example of, of mowing down Tsar Nicholas II's parade shows that. I mean, that clearly was not thought to be even remotely possible and yet you know there there he was i, I bet they learned <laughs> yeah yeah exactly i bet but, they learned from yeah, that yeah but that's just something like okay you know for the for the czar to come out and 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 do an inspection like that they must have considered that to be you know 100% safe, safe. absolutely yeah. and and they learned they right. learned that it wasn't the war in the air was one of skill and constant peril these men mastered the machine and the tactics to become aces in their own right and in several instances, led their knowledge to the German aces of the following war. So the Czechs, in, in, this, in one sense, uh, have definitely left their, their stamp on this mark of the war. We want to thank you for listening to this evening and to our Great War episode, Death from Above. We will continue with this special program on World War I from a Czech perspective next time on the Bohemian Podcast. Until then, have a good evening. Thanks very much. You have been listening to The Great War, the Czech experience brought to you by the Bohemian Podcast. For more information on this special series, please go to bohemican.com. Thank you for listening.